morning. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I'm Mark. I'm from QNX. And today I want to talk about robocars um, and user models. We hear an awful lot these days about uh, the advent of autonomous vehicles, of, of robocars, self-driving cars. And the focus, when we hear about these things in the media, is usually about the engineering triumphs, all of the really difficult problems that have been solved uh, to enable this technology, the technological victories, I guess. And it's fair to say that most major car companies and a lot of universities around the world have major engineering programs dedicated to solving these technological problems. As a matter of fact, um, there's a local connection just down the road at the University of Parma. I've been lucky enough to be talking with these guys at VizLab. Uh, they've got a really cool program, self-driving cars. Some of you guys may have heard of this. Uh, wait for more announcements about that uh, early next year. But besides the engineering, you're starting to hear more and more people talk about this, and you'll hear more, I think, from my friend Brad Templeton here today about the autonomous vehicle as uh, disruptive technology. Fascinating stuff. But the one thing I noticed that nobody seems to be talking about very much are the really interesting design problems, the really interesting human-machine interface problems that are brought about by autonomous vehicles. The one thing I want to clear up is that autonomous doesn't mean driverless. We worry about, in, in the work that I do, a lot about distracted driving. And when we're designing user interfaces in a car, we try to make sure that they're easy to use, they're not distracting, because you kill people. It's not a good thing. And a lot of people seem to think that this distracted driving problem is a temporary one because eventually the cars are going to be driving themselves and you'll be able to read your newspaper and drink your breakfast cappuccino and the car will take care of itself. But it's not really true. Uh, Elon Musk, the guy at Tesla, he just announced about a month ago that in three years you'll be able to buy a Tesla that's 90% autonomous. And I believe him. Because he's a pretty smart guy. He's kind of like, uh, like Tony Stark, you know, he's building spaceships and stuff. So I believe him when he says this. But the interesting thing is that interface between that 10% where you're driving and the 90% where you're not. Um, driver distraction is, is still an issue. It, it does, hasn't gone away. It's just really been compressed into that interface between when the car is driving and when the human is driving. And I think this is something that deserves a little bit more attention. There's a really big new problem that's come about with these semi-autonomous cars, and that is this context switch between when we're doing whatever it is we're doing when the car is driving and when the car asks us to take over. Consider this. You're driving to work in the morning. It's 100 kilometers an hour on the highway, and you're reading the paper and sipping your breakfast cappuccino while the car drives itself. Suddenly, the car detects it's a situation it doesn't know how to handle, it's beeping, it's flashing, maybe it's vibrating the seat, trying to get your attention. Say, like, human, please take the wheel. Something's going on. I can't take this, you know? Consider how hard that's going to be. You're going to have to come up to speed on what the situation is doing, where your car is, uh, why the car asks you to take control, what's going on all around your car, all of this situational awareness. This is very, very new. This is a very, very difficult HMI problem to solve. There is a precedent for it, though. Um, these guys have to deal with this. Someone described to me 
the work of a commercial pilot as being hour after hour of boredom punctuated by brief moments of absolute terror. And I, <laughs> yeah, and it's probably true. I mean, the computer does most of the flying. Even lands airplanes, I don't know if you guys have had this experience of landing in Heathrow or San Francisco. You look at the window and there's another airplane about 100 meters off the wingtip. It's all under computer control. But commercial pilots are trained to do this. They know what they're doing. This is something that um, is really very much a specialty for these people. It's something that we don't ask of normal drivers very often. And I think that if you can describe the user experience in an autonomous car as long hours of boredom punctuated by moments of brief terror, um, then we haven't done a very good job. So how do we solve a problem like this? Usually, as designers, the way we would begin is to think about what the user model should be, especially with a complicated system like an autonomous car. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with user models. It's an abstraction. It's a metaphor, if you like that takes a complicated system and presents it in a new way that's understandable and that's usable um, by average users. Uh, and they're very useful. A very familiar example is the desktop metaphor on your PC. Not everybody's comfortable with command lines and set and awk and grep and file systems, like I am, but I'm a geek. They're much more comfortable with the idea of putting stuff on a desktop and picking it up. That's an example of a user model. It's an abstraction. It's a metaphor that makes something complicated usable. So they're very important. So a really good question that is sort of unanswered so far, and, and to, you know, in my experience, from what I've read, almost unasked, is how are we going to relate to your robocars as users? This is really, really fascinating. Well, I'm going to digress right now and talk a little bit about what I think is a, a very risky thing, a very tempting thing, um, but one that we should try to avoid. This is probably the biggest problem that we're going to need to solve uh, when it comes to the commercialization of autonomous car technology. Pathetic fallacy. Pathetic fallacy is the attribution of human qualities to non-human entities. Sometimes this can be poetic. We can talk about the angry sea or something like this, a personification. Uh, most of us do this. You think, oh, my computer... It doesn't want to print this document. My computer hates me. It forgot where the printer is. None of that's true. It doesn't hate you. It doesn't care about you at all. It's just a machine. But we project onto these machines all these human qualities. It was very natural for us. Most of our big brains, in our evolutionary history, the most complicated thing that we ever came across was other human beings. And so our brains are really geared towards trying to figure out what's in your brain, what are you figuring out, what's your intention. What are you feeling? It's a very, very natural tendency for us to do this, especially now that we live in an age where we're starting to build systems that are doing things that previously were the sole province of human beings. Now, this is very interesting and very, very new. And so it's very tempting for us when we see these things, like when we watch a robot climb the stairs or something, to project upon these machines a lot more human qualities than we ought to. So it's tempting for us as users to approach these systems this way, and it's tempting for us as designers to fall back on this because it's very familiar to the users. It's a very handy abstraction, but the problem with abstractions is that they leak. They work up to a point, up to the limit of performance, and then 
they sh sort of, you know, the actual thing, the real machine shines through. So I want to give a couple of examples of where the pathetic fallacy sort of breaks down um, in cases where we've got computers doing things that only humans used to do. I want to mention right now that the way these computers are solving these problems is not the way that we solve these problems. Uh, computers are usually solving these problems using brute force. And so what happens, the, the exact behavior that they exhibit when they're doing these things is very different from what humans do. This is a good one. That's Gary Kasparov. Uh, he's having a bad day. Because he's getting his ass kicked by a computer playing chess. This is back in 1997. Now you guys remember, uh, he beat Big Blue, IBM's computer, in 1996. And then IBM went back and changed some stuff and made it a little bit smarter. And then it beat him. He's the, possibly the best uh, chess player who ever lived. And in the middle of the game, he said, you know, he, was, he saw the computer make these moves and he attributed to what he called uh, uh, a greater intelligence, which I think was a mistake on his part. And a mistake I think he realized at the end of it. Because he realized that he was playing against this machine as though it were a human being. But the machine was not doing things that a human would do. And he said, actually, after the match, the engineers at IBM, he said, you know, if you guys had explained to me the algorithms behind the way this machine worked, I might have done better. In other words, if he had had a better user model, if he hadn't projected too much humanity onto the system, he might have done better. There's another more familiar example, Siri and Google Voice. Computers are really good now. Well, they're good at half of natural language uh, processing. We're good at going from speech to text. Because uh, that's just brute force. You can do a little phonetic analysis, and you can figure out what words were said. Going from that string of words to what the, the intent was, what the meaning was, is really, really hard. Siri's interesting because it's presented to us as a human being. It's a she. It has a name. It talks to us. It has a voice. It's supposed to be this virtual di digital assistant. But you don't need to play with it very long before you figure out that you're going to get more out of Siri if you talk to it not as a human, but when you figure out the little tricks that it's actually able to do as a machine. In other words, until you build a better user model of this thing on your own, instead of the one that's presented to you by Apple Marketing, um, you don't get the best possible experience. So there's a lot of danger, I think, in, in, in allowing users to apply the pathetic fallacy to the robocar. They're going to make assumptions about the way this thing is going to behave that are not just wrong, but are dangerous in a safety-critical system like this. And as designers, we need to really resist this temptation, this, you know, to take advantage of the, the natural human thing to sort of project all this humanity onto it. It can get really bad, I'll show you. I mean, this is, this is a possible future for us. I don't know if you guys, is anyone old enough to remember Clippy? It was a horrible anthropomorphism, you know? It's the same sort of thing. This is <laughs> a bit of an exaggeration, but once my illustrator had drawn this up, it was just so silly, um, I couldn't resist it. It's a really, really bad idea to try and personify the robocar because gonna, we're going to make bad ideas, make bad decisions. Now, what would be better? This is a really neat question. Um, a really, really difficult one, and one that I hope everybody gets now is, is going to be really, really important. If you think about it, if you look back in the history of transportation, there is a precedent for a semi-autonomous mode of transport that's guided by an intelligent different from our own. And it's a little bit surprising. 
It's the horse. You think about the user experience riding on a horse. The horse is doing a lot of stuff itself. It can swim across rivers. It can follow a path. But when you're riding a horse, you're sitting up, you're paying attention because you never know, you know, the horse is going to buck you off or do something or it might need to, you know, steer it away from a cliff or something like this. This might be a better place to start when we're thinking about the user model of the autonomous vehicle than the personified pathetic fallacy way. Um, because it, until, as long as there's a steering wheel in that car, you're going to have to be paying attention. And the user model that we present to the users is going to have to afford that attention. It's going to have to ask that attention. Paying attention in these cars is going to have to be natural to the users. Because if it's not, they're not going to do it. They're going to assume that the car knows what it's doing, and everything's going to be great. And so those situations that pop up, which they will, even if they're very rare, we're going to have millions of these things out on the road. They're going to be very, very dangerous. This is going to prevent this technology from living up to its promise of safer transport. It's going to maybe even make it hard for this technology to be accepted by people. So anyway, it's, um, it's interesting times. We're actually living on the cusp of, if you think of it like a, like a Cambrian explosion in forms. You can think of it like the advent of the automobile 100 years ago. Nobody even could figure out how you're supposed to steer these things. They had handles, some had tillers, some had steering wheels. And after a period of experimentation and failure, people figured out that, okay, the steering wheel is the right way to do it. The same thing is going to happen with these autonomous cars. And it's going to be really, really interesting to watch over the next few years. All of these different academic programs, all these different commercial programs producing these things, there's going to be a wild period of experimentation where you're going to get very, very different approaches to this. Some of them are going to work better. Some of them are not going to work better. Um, and eventually, we'll converge on on a certain thing. And it's going to affect everything. Think about brands and stuff like this. Consider, if you approached a, an autonomous Volvo, what your expectation would be of the driving experience in a car like that, as compared to approaching an autonomous BMW, for example. You're going to expect this car to behave differently. Or even an autonomous Ferrari. I'm not sure. I've been thinking about that one, being in Italy. Uh, I don't know whether it makes sense or not. I think it might actually be kind of fun to ride in an autonomous Ferrari. A little bit scary. Anyway, I want to close with uh, a bit of an invitation, a little bit of a plug. Uh, if any of you are at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas next January, it's only a couple of months away, I hope you'll find the time to come up to the North Hall, which is where all the automotive stuff is. Um, a lot of it's just subwoofers and stuff, but there's a lot of cool stuff as well. I'll be there with our latest concept car. Now, this year it's not an autonomous vehicle. Maybe next year. But it will be showing uh, our latest ideas about what it, the future of infotainment will be, what the future of the integration of mobile technology will be, uh, and hopefully a couple of really cool surprises as well. So if any of you do make it up to the North Hall, look for the QNX booth. It'll be nice and big. Um, say that you saw me at FOY. I'll be the Canadian with the beard, and I'll make sure you get a VIP tour of things. Thank you all very much for your kind attention. Enjoy the rest of the conference.